Well, good morning, church family. Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. I, I hope you're all ready to go this morning because we are going to do an overview of this whole chapter today. It's going to go quick, so stick with me. So while the kids are doing some bingo, let's get an overview of this passage uh, and, and kind of see what our purpose is for this morning because chapter 23 picks up right where Paul has been brought before the Jewish council. You may recall that he traveled to Jerusalem uh, in hopes of arriving by Pentecost, even though it was assumed by Paul that he was going to be put to death there. And when people realized who he was, Paul was physically assaulted by a mob. You remember this? He was attacked by a group of people in chapter 22, and then he was rescued by a Roman tribune who was about to interrogate Paul by torture before Paul told him that he was a Roman citizen, so he had all the rights and privileges associated with that, meaning he couldn't be punished. He couldn't even be bound legally without having some kind of a, a legal step taken first. And so the tribune then turns him over to the Jerusalem council, and uh, which I believe that's what we call the Sanhedrin, because uh, he, he didn't know what else to do with Paul. And so he took him and kind of delivered him over to them. Now, the Sanhedrin was a mixture of Pharisees, who were kind of the minority party at this point, and uh, the Sadducees, who were likely in the majority because the high priest was a Sadducee. And he, he's a really ugly character. We're going to talk about him in a few minutes. But, but bear in mind, Paul was originally a Pharisee. Okay, he was, he was part of the strictest, the most legalistic sect of Judaism before his conversion. And he was taught by a fellow by the name of Gamaliel. We talked about him too. He's a very famous Pharisee. And this is kind of important for later, just, just how very connected to Pharisaism Paul was. And anyway, this is a pretty long narrative. It covers a space of maybe 48 hours, okay? But there are several tidbits in it. Uh, but hopefully by now you guys know um, when Mark's preaching, you want to look for a big overarching theme that shows up in that passage. And so today I feel like we get a great example from Paul of how to handle ourselves when we are in hostile territory. Okay, specifically when the hostility is directed toward us because of our faith in the risen Christ. And I believe this also applies to us when the hostility is not necessarily uh, due to our belief in Jesus, but toward our speech or toward our actions that we make as a result of our belief in Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, like things you may stand for or stand against as a Christian. They may not care what you believe, but they care what you think about the world, so to speak. So uh, what we're going to do then is move ahead. We're going to look at our old buddy, the Apostle Paul, and what he did when he was faced with a hostile audience. And I'm convinced that, that from this chapter, there's at least seven lessons that we can learn from Paul in Jerusalem. So if everybody's found chapter 23 in your Bibles, let's go ahead and pray. I'm going to give the kids just a few more seconds because um, I don't want them looking at the bingo picks during the prayer. So... Kids, find them, quick. Got them? Okay. All right. Father God, um, I just ask in Jesus' name for each person here that you will help us to be faithful, uh, help us to be uh, godly, help us to listen this morning, Father, because the things that you show us through Paul in here I think are valuable to us, Lord, and they're going to be things that we can carry with us because, Father, we need to be more outreach-oriented. We need to be more uh, focused on not just living the gospel but, but also sharing it with people so that they can hear the words 
Father, we know that your word says, how can they believe if they have not heard? So, Father, I pray that you'll help each person here to know the gospel and to be able to share it with their friends, family, uh, even with strangers, Father. Um, we ask in Jesus' name this morning also that you help us to be good soil so that the seeds that are planted take root and bear fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, we looked at this a while back, uh, but I'd like to reiterate just how important that it seems to be to Paul to have a clear conscience. Okay? What that means, at least with regard to sharing the gospel, uh, is, is probably that he has nothing recent that he knows he should have done but didn't do, and nothing recent that he knows he should not have done that he did. And that is an awesome place to be. I would like to, to encourage each of us today to recognize that having a clear conscience is priceless. There's no value that can be placed on having a clean conscience. Without a clean conscience, you can't sleep. Without a clean conscience, you always feel haunted. You feel guilty. To be able to say, as Paul did, that by the grace of God, you have a clear conscience about your performance, it sounds like something that we should truly aspire to. Because it means you can sleep at night without something plaguing your heart. You sincerely believe that you've left nothing undone that God has given you to do, and also that you had not intentionally and unrepentantly engaged in known sin. Okay. However, there are two different mentalities or, or personality types that need to be extra careful. I'm going to move this down just a little. <coughs> Excuse me. Probably the rarer of these two types of personalities is the person who suffers from an overactive conscience. They can even suffer from a condition called scrupulosity, meaning that they, they fear that they're displeasing God in areas that aren't so black and white, and their conscience rarely, if ever, feels calm. And if that's you, you need to remember it is Christ's performance that you're saved by, okay? Not your own. You need to remember that. The second, and in my opinion, more common type of personality suffers from not having a conscience that's sensitive enough because it has been seared by ignoring it. Now, these people are usually indistinguishable almost from worldly people because they live like they're not Christians in so many areas of life. They lack basic honesty, integrity, faithfulness, purity, kindness. Their tongues consistently tear down others. Now, this is a very dangerous position for the professing Christian to be in. And I encourage each of us to pray that God will sensitize our consciences. But I also ask that we ask him together to impart wisdom. Because the Bible promises, right? The Bible promises if you pray for wisdom, he will give it without finding fault. James, what is that, 1-5? Somewhere in there. It's one of my favorite, I don't remember where it is, but it's one of my favorite passages because... I so frequently have to ask God for wisdom. I know I don't come by it naturally. It's a supernatural gift from God. Anyway, this wisdom helps us know if our sensitive conscience is giving a false positive, okay? 
Um, frankly, most, most true Christians are probably not sensitive enough in many areas, but simultaneously we're overly, uh, overly concerned about other things, right? Um, I struggle with this. I'll tell you that. But thank God for his mercy, you know? Um, but on another note, though, look how boldly Paul speaks to, to this council. His, his voice, this passage reminds me of something that Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 10, which Christy read earlier this morning. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. I think Paul actually gives a good example here of both sides of that equation. He goes on to say, Beware of men, for they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So this is a fair warning, okay, for them and for us. <coughs> Excuse me. But don't let that warning make you fretful or worried because Jesus continued, when they deliver you over, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That is an awesome statement. And I, I think Paul was probably experiencing that. So he tells the, con the council that he has a clear conscience, and this was the result. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Let's pause here for a second. Ananias is an interesting guy for the wrong reasons. And, and while we don't learn a lot about him, like actually from the Bible, we do have historical record that explains his character pretty, um, pretty consistently. According to, to Josephus, he was the, the Jewish historian. Ananias was greedy. He was violent. He was cruel. He used bribery. He used extortion while he was in power. And it's possible that that may be part of how he got there in the first place. So we see that cruelty here, very apparent. And Paul is, he, he's simply offering a, a self-defense. He's saying, hey, I'm innocent. And, and, and so this high priest is telling his henchmen to smack him in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, this is my opinion, okay? But I think this is a stellar example of how to confront a wicked ruler of the people. He starts off with a prophetic statement that God would strike Ananias, which did happen, by the way. He got murdered just a few, I think it was just a couple of years later, in a rebellion. Then he calls him a whitewashed wall, which harkens back to what uh, Jesus said about hypocrites. He said they look clean on the outside, but they're filled with wickedness and rot on the inside. I want to go back and, and just remind you of something. I know I've said this before from the pulpit, but it's probably been a couple of years and there's a lot of new people, okay? A hypocrite is not someone who doesn't perfectly practice what they preach. That's a human being, okay? I do not perfectly practice what I preach. I wish I did. Trying. A hypocrite is a person who pretends to be something they're not. 
That is the difference. Don't conflate the two because everyone fails to perfectly live up to their own moral standard, whether that person is an atheist, whether they're a Christian. But a hypocrite is a person who pretends to be righteous when they are not on the inside. Okay? We good? We clear? All right. So, it's true. Paul does, <coughs> excuse me, Paul does end up seemingly backtracking part of the statement, uh, but, but he does not retract his very accurate assessment of Ananias. This, this high priest was not a man of good character. And so, friends, I think it's safe to say, if any of us are ever in circumstances like this, we can boldly call out wicked leaders and especially those who stand in the place of spiritual authority. Give me just a second. <clears throat> there's really there's a tremendous amount of background for this in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. God's MO was, was to send a prophet or a whole bunch of prophets to confront the, the civic rulers or the, the spiritual authorities for their rotten behavior. And sometimes these prophets got downright graphic. You know, you read uh, Ezekiel, you read Hosea, and some of it's just like, wow, this is PG-13 at the very least, and it's in my Bible. You know, um, anyway, we need to recognize it's a godly trait to have a submissive attitude toward the governing bodies, but that doesn't always mean just rolling over and allowing them free reign to ruin their domain, whether that domain is God's reputation because of spiritual authority or whether that domain is their nation. Anyway, uh, those who stood by said, I always want to do a British accent. It's, I don't know why. It's just something about the Pharisees. Would you revile God's high priest? And, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, this, this is an extremely interesting statement by Paul, and it shows one of two things. Really, it, it, shows, it shows one for sure, and then it might show the other one. We're going to talk about this real quick. Uh, first of all, humility. Okay? Humility should always be present when you are presenting the gospel. When you're sharing the truth about Christ, it should always be humble. But it may also be showing irony or even sarcasm which may actually have its place in certain circumstances. Okay, I want to look over both of these possibilities. Um, first of all, humility is something that all Christians ought to have at all times. We fail, but we should be consistently uh, exhibiting humility in our lives in the way that we relate to other people. And, uh, and again, we should consistently be respectful. We should have a submissive attitude toward those who are in authority. And Paul he shows this in general throughout his ministry. We see it all, all over the place. However, there may be something else going on here, okay? Now, to be frank, um, I always took Paul's statement at face value, really, until this past week, and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> after, after reading a lot of the commentaries and really thinking about it, um, when he said, I did not know, brothers, about Ananias being the high priest, um, that actually seems kind of implausible, <laughs> Because first of all, the dude wore the full-on high priest regalia, right? That nobody else wore, okay? And, and if he somehow didn't realize 
that that was the high priest who had made that comment, then, then I guess his, his apology was sincere. But the question is, how could Paul not know that the man presiding over his trial, wearing all the flowy robes, was the high priest? So is it possible that he was speaking ironically or even a little sarcastically? Because a legitimate high priest shouldn't break the law by commanding someone to be beaten simply because he's defending his innocence. It may have even been a backhanded statement about how Ananias got into power to begin with because he was known as a selfish and brutal man who wasn't above bribery. So folks, I don't know for sure, but it seems like Paul might be speaking tongue-in-cheek here just a little bit. And yet he corrected himself by saying, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So Paul stood before a ruler who is doing a terrible job, who may have received his position illegitimately, and who was abusing his power by breaking the very law he swore to uphold, and yet Paul still spoke with respect for the position of the high priest, as well as respect for the Lord. Now remember, this is the same Paul who later told his disciple Titus to remind Christians in that church, he said, be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward just the people you like. No. Perfect courtesy toward all people. See, Paul had a lot of experience with being polite to people who were abusive and even tyrannical, but he never failed to practice what he preached, except maybe here just a little. <laughs> we do seem to see that Paul was really respectful generally when he spoke to, to leaders. He kept a submissive attitude towards those in positions of authority in order to keep the name of Christ from being sullied. He didn't want Christians to look bad. That's part of when you read Romans 13, if you go back and look, two, three years ago, when COVID was still more of an issue, I preached a sermon on Romans 13, and we talked about that because um, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about Romans 13. You can go back and find that in our archives if you want. But um, the point is, it, it's not to say you have to obey they're governing authorities at all times, even when they're telling you something different from what God says. That is not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is Christians are supposed to be respectful. We're supposed to have a submissive authority. I mean, a, excuse me, a submissive attitude towards authority. So there's a difference between submissive attitude and blind obedience. Okay. Are we tracking? Okay. So at the same time, this whole submissive attitude thing, it needs to be balanced with the previous point. We need to be willing to call out wicked leaders, although we ought to do it with as much grace and tact as possible. I was thinking about reading the amazing, magnificent letter, open letter that was written by John MacArthur to Gavin Newsom. Um, not going to do that this morning because it's long and awesome, and it would make us go over time which we're already probably going to a little bit. So I'm not going to do that, but I probably will eventually because it's really good. Anyway, so um, we're going to continue. Now, when Paul perceived 
that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. He's not lying. Um, but it's interesting how he aligns himself in this way. Okay, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say, there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, I like the word clamor, and, uh, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke with him? Now that was pretty smart. Okay, Paul pitted the two factions in the room against one another, taking the heat off of himself for a little while. Okay? Now, Paul certainly knew that this had potential to cause a ruckus. In fact, I think he was counting on it. He certainly doesn't shy away from it. it indeed, it seems like he's putting the stick in the beehive and kind of swirling it around, right? And from this example, I think it makes sense that there are times when we should make use of unlikely allies. Make use of unlikely allies. Now, before I elaborate... Let me be clear about what I'm not saying, okay? This is not suggesting that Christians should try to work hand-in-hand with non-Christians toward a common spiritual goal, okay? For instance, a Christian should not consider a member of a cult or a false religion as a partner in leading people to Jesus. And any established church, I believe, needs to be careful about partnering with a non-Christian organization in any way that appears to equate them as equal bearers of truth, like these interfaith alliances that people are pushing nowadays. It's one thing to be ecumenical and say, if you believe in the gospel, you're my brother or sister. It's another thing to say, if, you're, if you believe in Allah, you're my brother or sister. That is, that is inaccurate. It's not scriptural. So, that doesn't mean we can't be friends with them. It doesn't mean that we can't team up in support of a common earthly goal, okay? But, but simply, we don't recognize non-Christians as being on equal spiritual footing. In, in my opinion, Christians should not be afraid to collaborate with non-Christians in civic matters, okay? I do not think it's wrong at all to vote for or to promote a non-Christian for public office if that person has policies that will promote a more godly society. It's okay to agree with non-Christians and collaborate to stand against abortion or to stand against gender reassignment for children or whatever, whatever else is currently being threatened by the culture, but we must not confuse having similar morals with sharing alike in precious faith. That's not the same thing, okay? In this case, however, um, Paul's actually using the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And he's doing it for the purpose of, of causing chaos. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's great. I think that's what he was intending to do. Paul knew the Pharisees weren't Christians. Okay, They're not saved, but they did. They did share belief in the spirit world and the afterlife. And so he was able to turn them into unlikely allies against the Sadducees, who are actually, as far as I can tell, the majority party. And he did that in order to make it impossible for him to get a good trial. It's kind of like forcing a mistrial. Okay? Now, why did he do it? He did it to ensure that he would have more opportunities to share the gospel as he went further up the court system. 
I think there's something for us to, to glean from. If, if we're in a position of suffering for Christ, it is not immoral to use every tool at our disposal to protect ourselves and promote the spread of the gospel, even using unlikely allies in a secular world. Does that make sense? I know I went through a lot of stuff there, but I want us to understand that. Um, all these examples are wanting to come out, but I'm going to stick to this. We've got to keep going. So we'll keep reading. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that, be, that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take them away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This is the second time that we read about people being this worked up. Because remember, when they first were coming to the council... Uh, they had to lift him up and literally carry him above the crowd because the crowd was, they were just trying to, to pull him down and, and kill him. So they were really, really upset. The following night, the Lord stood by him, this by Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is neat for a couple of reasons. We're going to talk about one of them now, the other later. Um, it's cool because God let Paul know what was coming next. How often does that happen? <laughs> I mean, most of us have no clue what, you know, what, what our, our next day is going to hold. We, we may have plans, but God spoke to Paul, and he said, this is what is going to happen. You're going to testify about me in Rome. Because remember, Paul was absolutely ready to, he was ready to suffer and die for the gospel. He seemed to think he was going to meet his end in Jerusalem. But instead, God was letting him know he would have a much greater role by testifying before the rulers of the Gentiles and, and even, even all the way up to Caesar, which comes later. Uh, now, say this, this would be kind of like if we were you know, kicking a, a case up through the court system. We went from a local court to like a state court, and then we went to a federal circuit judge court, and then we end up in the Supreme Court. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, I think you guys know what know what that's about a little bit. Um, anyway, this was a big deal. So continuing on. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. That, that's a lot of people who seriously wanted Paul dead, right? Um, <coughs> excuse me. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. God bless you. This is a pretty terrible thing to do. Okay? These, these, these guys were trying to deceive the Gentile rulers in order to, to perpetrate premeditated murder. Right? That's what this was. And, you know, in their minds, it was probably like a, a bold and honorable thing. It was a political assassination to get rid of a troublemaker because they believed Paul was misleading the Jewish people. But they themselves, they were the ones deceived by Satan, not Paul. However, they were going to regret that oath. <laughs> um, now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So this is Paul's nephew. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man, take him to the tribune, he has something to say. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, 
Uh, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. So the tribune took him by the hand, pulled him aside, asked him privately, what is it that you got to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somehow more, more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Right now they're ready. They're waiting for your consent. And so the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions. You remember why they're called centurions? Because they've got 100 dudes under him. So he calls two of the centurions and says, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 spearmen, sorry, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That was midnight, folks, okay? Also provide mounts. Is that right? Am I right, Craig? Is it midnight, the third hour of the night? Was it 9 o'clock? Okay. I might be wrong. All right. So anyway, it was at nighttime, and so they... They were supposed to ride, uh, and he says, provide mounts for Paul to ride, bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Well, that's going to put a damper on this assassination plot, right? Because being outnumbered by more than 10 to 1 by professional soldiers is probably not going to work. I wonder how many of them actually tried to keep their oath. You know, I, I, you know what, like, and for how long before, before going to offer a sacrifice to cover their rash vow? Uh, because... Obviously, they didn't get Paul. Anyway, we see here that Paul learned of the plot, and then he, he actually did something about it. And I think we can accept that we don't always have to be passive when it comes to our response to mistreatment. Okay? Now, to be sure, Paul didn't hire a hitman to hit the hitmen. Okay? But he sent his nephew to the tribune, who was a, a governmental authority charged with keeping the peace. So, in other words, Paul went through proper channels. And the Lord protected him through that means. Now, I want to put this into a more modern context, okay? The Bible is extremely clear that we Christians do not have the right to take vengeance on someone else, okay? I hope we're all on the same page about that. However, I do believe, and sometimes I think that, that it has to do with the laws of whatever place that you're in, and we are in the United States of America, we have the right to protect ourselves and our loved ones from violent harm, assuming our consciences allow. Now, that doesn't mean you do like the old Andy Cap cartoon. Any of you guys remember that? He says, well, I, I thought he was going to hit me, and so I hit him back first. You know, that doesn't work. That's not how that works, okay? Um, but I do believe Christians should take adequate precautions for the sake of your personal safety and the safety of your loved ones. Again, assuming your conscience allows it. We men especially have an obligation, okay? And I'm saying that, men, you need to hear this. We have an obligation to protect our families from harm, physical and spiritual. But should we ever reach the point where the government is actively involved in persecution of Christians for the sake of Christ, we're going to have to determine whether we'd be morally justified in fighting back, and, and I'm going to tell you this, and I'm saying this as individuals, not as a war effort, okay? My current belief, my, my belief right now is that Paul would say no. I think Paul would say, you don't have that right. If it ever happens, we'll talk about it. 
Till then, I'm not going to worry about it, okay? Uh, at least not much. <laughs> My wife smiles, yeah. Um, so I hope we don't have to find out. But anyway, reading on. The Tribune is getting Paul ready uh, to go with this massive military escort. And then he wrote the letter to, the, to this effect. It says, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Jewish, I mean, excuse me, a Roman citizen. He's completely, conveniently leaving out the part where he illegally bound a Roman citizen and was about to interrogate him by <coughs> torture. Anyway, uh, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Uh, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, which, of course, the Tribune knows nothing about, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed, uh, disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Okay? So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go, uh, go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. Uh, and when he learned he was from Cilicia, the governor said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Paul's now on Herod's turf. I want, I want you to bear in mind that the Jews essentially had like a, like a figurehead king. You know, we might even call him a puppet king um, that, was, that was technically under the Roman rule, but he was a Jew, so that basically to keep the Jewish people happy. Um, and so Paul is just consistently being shuffled upward through the ranks by God's sovereign design to preach the gospel to, to those who might not hear it otherwise. Okay? But notice again just, just how hated Paul was. He was so hated by these accusers. You know, the Sanhedrin hated his guts. And both the, the tribune and the, the governor refer to Paul's accusers they hated him for good reason. From their perspective, you know, the followers of the way were really making it hard for the Sanhedrin to keep people under their thumb, religiously and politically. Having allegiance to the Lord Jesus is not just a threat to their faith. It's a threat to their ability to hold sway over the people. But from Paul's perspective, they also hated him for the right reason, because he believed the gospel and he refused to shut up about it. I think that we should understand, friends, it's okay to be hated for the right reason. It is okay. If we are doing good according to God's word while refusing to bow to the wickedness and idolatry in our culture, people are going to notice and some of them will utterly despise us for it. We should expect it. Even, even people in the so-called church who have already capitulated to the world are going to despise us. And so you know what? That's okay. Jesus told his disciples it was going to happen. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's from John 15. You jump into the next chapter, which is just a little later in the same conversation. Jesus lets the, them know, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. In other words, don't be shocked 
when you're hated on Jesus' account. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. That's what's going on with Paul. That's what's happening right now. While many of the Jewish leaders were afraid of losing their authority, others are more concerned that their religion's being ruined. And that's why they wanted Paul dead. You remember, it's like Paul said in Romans 11. They had zeal, but without knowledge. <coughs> and even today, friends, many of those who will hate us in the future, if they don't already, they're going to hate us because we believe what is right and good, and they believe that what we know to be right and good is actually wrong and evil. Because they see evil as good. They see wrong as right. Now for many of them, it won't be that they are intentionally behaving wickedly. They're simply, they have a totally backwards idea of morality because they have been deceived by Satan. They have been taken captive by a deceptive philosophy. That is the world that we live in. And like Jesus on the cross, we need to be ready to forgive them for what they're doing because they don't even realize it's evil. We just we need to faithfully do and say what is right, even in the face of hostility. And when we do this, friends, Christ said we should rejoice and leap for joy because we are blessed. You know, the apostle Peter, who is... He died by crucifixion upside down, no less. He, he was refusing to deny Christ, and that's why he was crucified upside down. He wrote these words, Beloved, do not be surprised. You know this one. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you get to share in Christ's sufferings. Wow. Why? So that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a cool promise. Powerful thing to cling to. And it brings us back to our final brief but profound point, okay? Notice back in verse 11, in the, the middle of the narrative, Luke writes that the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Friends, on top of the promise of eternal life and glory, this is perhaps the most hope-producing thing to remember. Whatever we are enduring for the sake of Christ and the gospel, God is with us in the middle of it all. He is with us. We can trust his promise is true. We can trust his presence is real. You know, the last words of Matthew's gospel spoken, uh, spoken to the disciples, they ring true for us. Nearly two millennia later, behold, Jesus said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So listen, if your faith is in the risen Christ, God the Son and the Son of God, who died on a cross to pay the price for your sins, and then God raised him from the dead, proving that every word he spoke was true. If your faith is in that man, that God, you're covered by his atoning blood. 
And if you're covered by his atoning blood, you don't have to worry that he'll ever leave you nor forsake you. You are safe in the palm of his hand. So don't fear people. They can only hurt you in this life, you know, but, but this, this life is just a blip in the grand scheme of the eternity that Christ has saved you for. So trust him and believe in his words. The time is coming, friends, when it's going to be a lot harder for us to witness. So listen to me. Start now. Get used to it now before it gets even harder. Get used to rejection. Get used to hard questions. Share the truth about Christ now. People need it now. If you're a person that doesn't know Jesus this morning, I want to just invite you, challenge you to take that step of faith. The word tells us that when we, when we believe on Jesus, we need to repent. We need to be baptized according to what the word teaches. We need to obey. The best way to do that, friends, is, is to, first of all, just to do what he said. And then if you've already done that, to become a part of a Bible-believing church body. And that's, we're, we're here. We want you. Just want to encourage you. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning, don't say no. Don't say no.